0: A man died who was extremely wealthy. His will was full of art pieces, very expensive art pieces. This man had a son who had died before him, a son whom he loved, and this son would have been his only heir. Soon after the death of the wealthy man, a public auction was held that included all the valuable art pieces. People came from all over the world because of that, those pieces of art. Over a thousand people gathered to participate in the auction. The auctioneer began the auction by offering up for sale a portrait painted by the deceased son. It was a rather plain painting, not at all like all the other expensive art pieces. The floor opened for bids, but there weren't any. After what seemed like a long silence, an uncomfortable silence, a little old man walked down the aisle. As he neared the front of the room, the auctioneer recognized him. He had been the servant of the wealthy man. He meagerly and almost shamefully offered a couple of dollars from his pocket for the child-drawn portrait. The auctioneer hit his gavel and said, "'Sold!' The many people in the room shifted with excitement." preparing for the main part of the selling to begin. But much to their surprise and chagrin, the auctioneer hit the gavel again and said, auction over. The auctioneer went on to explain, in the will of the master, the instruction specifically said to offer for sale the painting drawn by his son first, and that whoever gets the painting of his son gets the whole art collection. The master had decided well in advance that whoever loved his son could not only have his son's work, but would receive the entire inheritance of the father. Much like the elderly servant who loved the master's son, we who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ will share in the inheritance of the father we are born again, we become, ch- and, and excuse me, when we are born again, we become children of God, citizens of the heavenly kingdom and heirs to an eternal inheritance. The result is that we are blessed and we ought to live with an attitude that reflects that blessedness. And is that not what our book is about? We're going to be talking about the whole semester. So what does it mean to be blessed? In its most simplistic definition, the word blessed means, and if you've already started reading the book, you know, blessed means happy. One commentator said this, the basic New Testament meaning that we're looking at is a continual constant state of happiness, a state of bliss, a state of blessedness, a state of well-being in which a person finds satisfaction and fulfillment. It is a term that is connected to believers, and used to describe those who are believers. It is not used to describe anywhere in scripture those who are not believers, which means unbelievers cannot be blessed and happy in the same way that we as God's children can be. So a permanent state of happiness, true bliss and contentment satisfaction and fulfillment belongs only to those who know God. In the beatitudes Jesus identifies those who are blessed or happy. He explains that those who are poor are happy and those who mourn are happy. What a paradox. How can this possibly be true? The Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, commented on this, on this paradox in a sermon that he did. He did a whole series of sermons and they put it into book form on the Beatitudes, on the Sermon on the Mount, actually. And he said this, suppose the world should be asked, who are those that are blessed? Certainly, they would never have said the poor was blessed. They would think them to be miserable that are poor. Blessed are the rich would the world say they are happy indeed we call the pr- we call the proud happy but here scripture says blessed are the poor ask the world again who are blessed men they would never tell you that those that mourn are blessed certainly if there be any blessed in the world they must be those that live brave jolly lives clearly They are the ones that are blessed. No, saith Christ, it is contrary. Blessed are they that mourn. And he goes on to say later, if we would know how to be happy and blessed, it must be by Christ. The natural wisdom of man can never reach it. It is only by Christ that we may know how to be happy. When Christ comes to be revealed, the thoughts and hearts of men are raised and enlarged. They look after happiness in another manner than formerly they did. As believers, we should not be looking to the things that used to bring us hope and joy and satisfaction. As believers, we should be looking to an eternal inheritance through Jesus Christ. That's where our hope and our joy comes. Being born again, being part of the eternal kingdom changes absolutely everything for us. It lifts our hopes out of the quagmire of sinful earthly limitations and elevates them to an eternal expectation of joy and peace in the presence of our Savior. It changes our future from one of judgment and death to life and inheritance. Thus, we are able to be happy when we are poor in spirit and happy when we mourn over our sin. So as I have been reading, specifically, even just through the introduction of the book, I have found myself contemplating several different things, but particularly what it means to be blessed. Most importantly, to be blessed requires that we must be in the eternal kingdom. If you were here when Chris taught through Matthew, you remember it was all about the kingdom. We are kingdom citizens. He said this over and over and over again. Christians are in the eternal kingdom. We are, we are citizens of heaven, kingdom citizens. So Chris actually wrote this. The most important aspect of our identity is how we are related to the kingdom of God. There you go. Let me read it again. This is so important. The most important aspect of our identity. Who are you? How do you identify yourself? Are you a mom? Are you a grandma? Are you an employee? Are you a wife? What are the ways that you identify yourself? There is nothing else more important than what he says right here. Our identity is how we are related to the kingdom of God. Are you in the kingdom? Are you a kingdom citizen? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? It is only by being born again that we can become part of the eternal kingdom, which enables us to be blessed. So it seemed good to me as I pondered the blessings that accompany salvation to pick a passage that describes those blessings But really, before we jump into our passage, and we'll read it in just a minute, I felt like there was a couple of things that I needed to address, especially as we all gather here together on our very first meeting for the Bible study this time, and really particularly because of what we're going to be studying, because all of the things that we're going to be learning about, to be blessed, we have to be in the kingdom. If we are not in the kingdom, the things in this book are not going to apply to us. So in a group this size, it seems wise to consider, are we in the kingdom? And each of us to consider that personally. So on your outline, I have two questions. Number one, are you in the kingdom? Are you a Christian? Just because you go to church or you made a profession of salvation at a previous time in your life, doesn't mean you're a Christian. One of the primary focuses of this study, like I already said, is to contrast the attitude of those who are in the kingdom of God, Christians, with those who are not in the kingdom of God, unbelievers. Being in the kingdom is not determined simply because you decided to be a Christian. Christianity is not something you sign up for and you just decide, I'm a Christian. My family was a Christian. It requires, Christianity requires a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart that brings them from death to life. It is a transformation of a dead heart of stone into a living heart whose desires now reflect the heart of Jesus Christ. Christ, a dead heart, will never reflect the heart of our risen Savior because it cannot. If you made a profession of faith, for example, pray to prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, but your life has had very little significant long-term change since that time, you may need to evaluate whether or not you are in the kingdom of God. If you have little or no desire or interest to know Jesus more deeply, and you lack a growing desire to please him with your life, you may need to ask yourself, am I in the kingdom? Number two, rejoicing should characterize kingdom citizens. And we did not like my, my intent, when I first looked at our Peter passage that we're going to look at, I'm like, oh yeah, we're going to do verses three through nine. Well, actually we're going to do a poor job of getting through three through five (laughs) because there's just so much there. But verse six, we are going to read that and you're going to see that it says rejoice. And what is he talking about rejoicing in? All the things we're going to talk about today, those are the things that as Christians that we should be rejoicing in. So you can think about that as as I even mentioned this right now. If you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you have much in which to rejoice. However, we need to be reminded of what it means to be in the kingdom because when we forget or become distracted, we stop rejoicing and begin to think like those who profess a prosperity gospel. We begin to hope for or anticipate and expect to have our best life now. That is the prosperity gospel, isn't it? Not in eternity with Christ. So we want our best life now, not what's coming in the future. We're distracted by everything here. We want our comfort. We want our politics to be good. We want our husbands to behave the way we expect. We want our children to behave the way we expect. We have all this list of things. And you know what? That list might look a little bit different for all of us, but we have a list of things that we think we need or deserve in order to live life, even in a manner that pleases the Lord. Well, if this was good, then I could do what the Lord wanted. No. That may be why the Lord didn't give you that in your mind to be good, so that you would learn to please him in spite of those things, in the midst of those things. When we hope to get our best life now, we fail to reflect the attitude Jesus describes in the Beatitudes Our disappointment over not having an easy and comfortable life on earth steals our ability to rejoice and prevents us from reflecting an attitude of blessedness. Girls, this is not about your best life. And if somebody tells you Christianity is about your best life now, they're selling you something and you don't want any part of it. Because walking with God is challenging It is a war we are told in scripture between the spirit that indwells us and the flesh that's always wanting to be sinful. So many things that make being a Christian difficult. But the reason why we have hope as we're going to see is because of the inheritance that we have in heaven awaiting us through Jesus Christ. And that is where we focus Do you ever wonder why you struggle to rejoice? Do you ever wonder why you have difficulty reflecting the blessedness Jesus describes in the Beatitudes? It may be that you have forgotten the blessings of the eternal kingdom. Or perhaps you have never known them because you are not in the kingdom. If we are truly Christians, we are in God's eternal kingdom, which means we are blessed It also means that we will not rejoice in the same things the world rejoices in, and we will not be made happy by what makes the world happy. Instead, our happiness will be found outside of this temporal life. Our blessedness or happiness will be rooted in what is eternal. The Apostle Peter beautifully describes the eternal aspects of kingdom citizenship. That should cause us to rejoice. He presents the reasons we are blessed or happy, or should be, anyways, within the eternal kingdom. The passage that we're going to look at today answers this question Why can believers live in a state of blessedness, which is defined, remember our definition, as happiness, contentment, satisfaction, and fulfillment? even when our circumstances do not provide reason for those attitudes. So let me read that to you again, and I'm going to leave out the definition to make it a little more succinct. Why can believers live in a state of blessedness even when our circumstances do not provide reasons for those attitudes? It's not impossible to live a life of rejoicing in the midst of Difficulties and challenges and heartaches that we face. So, with all of that, a very long introduction, turn with me to 1 Peter 1 if you aren't already there, and we will start reading in verse 3. And as I said before, we're only going to study through verse 5, but I did include verse 6 because. I just want that little tag on there because if you actually start studying it, you realize that verse 6, when he says, In this you greatly rejoice, he is actually referring back to verses 3 through 5. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary. I love that if necessary is in that verse. And you know why I love it so much? Because God has deemed it always necessary. (laughs) So it is necessary. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So when we are distressed by these various trials we can rejoice in the things that we are going to talk about moving forward right now. So uh, number one, Roman numeral one on your outline is bless God, give him praise and adoration. So I thought right out the gate here, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, But I think it's important that we clarify something because we are comparing our passage today to the Beatitudes where blessed is the poor in spirit, blessed are they who mourn. So then we say, bless God. Make God happy? Happy God? What are we we saying here? What you need to know is that they're two different Greek words. So when we have bless God, the Greek word there actually means praise and adoration. So we are praising God. So Peter starts then after he gets through his introduction, he starts by saying, praise God, adore God. And now he's going to tell us why. So A, capital A on your outline, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So as Peter begins this epistle, he begins by referencing the hope the believers have. Keep in mind the historic period in which Peter was writing. The believers had been dispersed. Remember, he calls them aliens and strangers. And they were experiencing the difficulties of persecution. Though Christianity was not formally illegal at that time, the Christians still faced discrimination and mistreatment. Peter refers to them as aliens and strangers reminding them that this world with its persecution was not their home because they were actually kingdom citizens. Then he makes this amazing statement. He says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So we're going to look at this word hope for a few minutes here because it's very significant. Now understand, so as I was reading through various commentaries, John MacArthur actually said, he's like, the word inheritance is the key word to this whole passage, but we have hope because of that inheritance. So we're going to talk for a few minutes about what this hope is. So hope means an expectation of good. So in the Christian sense, and this is from Thayer's lexicon, in the Christian sense, it means joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Confident. This is a key word here. Confident expectation. We don't have a hope so. We know so. Peter describes this hope as a living hope. It doesn't die with sickness, famine, financial loss, failure, political collapse, divorce, unexpected tragedy, or death. It is living and will never die because it is a hope that reaches beyond this decaying world. It is a hope that is rooted in the eternal kingdom. Of life. It is a living hope. But see, the problem with us and the reason why we struggle and the reason why we don't rejoice is because a lot of times we don't even realize our hope is in all that we see here. Our hope is in not experiencing financial ruin. Our hope is in good health. Our hope is in our kids walking with the Lord as they grow up, that they would know Him as their Savior. So, Is that the proper thing? Are those the proper things to put our hope in? No, because those are all fleeting. We have no control over them. Those hopes may all and likely will all die. But when we place our hope in eternity, it is a living hope because it is held by a living God. In Colossians 1.5, Paul describes this hope as being laid up for you in heaven. Peter praises God because there is a hope that reaches beyond the difficulties, the heartaches, the challenges, and the disappointments of the sin-cursed earth. It is a hope that transcends this world and reaches to a future that is secure in the presence of our God. Paul mentions again in Colossians, just a few verses later in verse 27, that he says, and I love this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is incredibly significant because true living hope is only possible if you have been born again. At salvation, Jesus Christ takes up residence in our hearts through the Holy Spirit and gives us eternal living hope. So this is a hope that undergirds and empowers the Beatitudes. This hope is what makes it possible for the poor in spirit to be happy and for those who mourn to be happy or those who are persecuted to be happy. For those who are in the kingdom, they have a living hope which enables them to respond rightly, biblically, and godly, even in the midst of the most trying, difficult circumstances. So to look at this from the opposite perspective, Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus reminding them of their dire spiritual condition before they were redeemed. Notice what he says about hope. He says, this is Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is what it means to be an unbeliever, to have no true hope. In contrast to unbelievers who have no true hope, true believers have a real, solid, secure hope that the unredeemed can never possess because it is a hope that is secured by God in the eternal kingdom. So let me ask you, do you have this kind of hope? Not a hope so, not a wishful thinking, but a guaranteed, secured Confident hope that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Not hope in a prayer that you prayed years ago, not hope in the good things you have done, not hope in your church attendance, not hope in the fact that you claim the name Christian. Do you have a living hope and a living Savior that is at work in your life? This is so significant to really identifying whether or not we are in the kingdom. So listen. Do you have a living hope and a living savior that is at work in your life, filling your heart with his desires and strengthening you to accomplish those Christ-centered desires through the power of his Holy Spirit? Now, did I say that you have to be able to perfectly live these out? No, because we all know we can't perfectly live them out. But what is your desire is your desire to please your Savior? Is your desire to know Him better? And I know that we go through times when emotionally we don't engage the way we ought to and where we struggle to feel the emotion of wanting to know Christ more. However, is that that feeling of, of really not having an interest... Is that what characterizes your life, or do you have a desire? Yes, feeble, waning, ebbing, but do you have a desire to know the Lord and to please Him? An unbeliever does not experience the same confidence because their hope is based in their own finite desires, abilities, and circumstances when they're present hopes and dreams die. There is nothing else. There is no guaranteed hope for a better future. Their best life is now, so when their loved one dies, when their business goes bankrupt, their, their health fails, or their friends betray them, their hope is absolutely shattered. Sadly, the unbeliever has nothing more than a dead hope which will be realized at the end of their physical life but believers are not limited to a wishful hope. So that's not us. As true Christians, when our temporal earthly dreams die, we have a better hope, a secure hope, an eternal living hope laid up in heaven. And I know I have belabored this. I do get that. I said the same thing over and over again. But we need to grasp this if we are going to understand the significance of the book we are going to be studying is so important. And if we are believers, have we focused our mind on the things here on earth? Have we placed our hope in things here rather than our eternal inheritance? So I thought I would stop here for just a moment to consider the practical implications of hope. If we have hope, it motivates us. To get up in the morning. And I don't want to make something, you know, a little weird out of hope. That's not my intent here. But check with where I'm going. So hope helps us to get up in the morning. It helps us to press on to the next thing, to make plans, to work hard. Hope is what helps to drive us to function in this world. The hopeless person often ends up in discouragement, depression, frustration. Even losing the will to live. Hope is powerful, but how does this affect our Christian life on a daily basis? So having an eternal hope. So I want to get a little bit practical here because as we were talking about, we don't want all of our theology and doctrine, great things we're hearing this morning, but tell me why this is important to helping me get here on Friday morning when I'm speeding down the road and my kids are crying in the backseat, all of these things. Why does this matter? How does it help? So having an eternal hope helps us to keep a right heart, a godly attitude in the midst of all kinds of difficulties, challenges, and provocations. Hope in our eternal inheritance helps us to respond with an attitude that reflects blessedness when we face things like financial challenges or ruin or when we face life-altering health issues or terminal illness, or when we face difficult relationships, or when we face hurt and betrayal by somebody that we love, or when we face just plain and simple ongoing irritations. You know the things I'm talking about. Just drive you crazy, and we let them drive us crazy. Because we know these things will eventually pass one day sin will be erased, the curse will be destroyed, and we will live in an eternal state of perfection. So that gives us hope in the midst of all these other things. I don't know what you guys wrestle with. I don't know the places that you have forgotten to hope in eternity. And if you don't know, ask the Lord to show you, what are the places that I am placing my hope in earthly things? So I thought I would give you an example from my own life to really think through, how does this make a difference? Because sometimes just, you know, being real, our own struggles can be helpful to one another. So I'm going to tell you about a situation with a neighbor that we have. We've probably all at different times had challenging neighbors, right? We currently have one and have for quite some time. So years ago, for those of you that know Grandpa Davis, this is Margaret's dad, before he passed away, he would come over to our house once in a while and he would drive really fast. He's a farmer, he's used to gravel roads and he would drive really fast. Our driveway is a quarter of a mile long and it's gravel just so that you know. And we share the front part of it with this particular neighbor. So he would drive really fast and that started to make our neighbor a little upset. That anger that our neighbor had just continued to grow and to grow. So years have passed. James comes to build the Airbnb. On that off of that little driveway there, and James drives a diesel because he needs a big truck that can carry a lot of weight. So the neighbor was mad at James, which in the end ended up that he put a uh, gravel speed bump just on the other side of his house where he never has to drive over it, but everybody that comes to our house, and we have to drive over the speed bump. So this is not legal. He needed to get our permission to do this and we have every right to get rid of that speed bump so we tried a couple of times only to find that it would be built up so high that we would drag the bottoms of our car over this speed bump well you can just imagine that craig and i are so godly (laughs) we never got mad we took cookies to our favorite neighbors no no major provocation we were both so frustrated. Why is he doing this? He doesn't have a right. He hates us. He hates anything that has to do with us. He, he hates everybody. The man is an unbeliever. He hates everybody. He's always unhappy. You don't ever want to get on the other side of him because we've heard other stories as well. But the fact of the matter is, how does my eternal hope bear on this situation what is your speed bump in your life there you go now you have a little thing to go home and remember right what's my speed bump but here's the thing that's really really important because I as I was trying to work through this I knew it was sinful to have a wrong attitude I knew I needed to try and keep a good attitude I'm still working through keeping a good attitude and oftentimes, in order to do that, I have to pray as I drive over that speed bump so that I am not angry every time I drive over because that's sinful and it displeases the Lord. So then I began to think, well, you know what? Nothing in life ever stays the same. One day, he, he only rents there. So one day, he's going to move. And I won't have to deal with it anymore. <clears throat> Where was my hope? My hope was in worldly things. What if he never moves? What if I die first? It's a false hope. There is no hope in that. And as I began in the last several months really to work through this, and Craig and I have talked about it and prayed about it, but I realized my eternal hope is in Christ and what he has done for me, not even the fact that I am a Christian and he is not. That's part of it. But the fact that nothing in this life is ever going to last forever because my hope is secured in heaven with God forever and ever. And because I know that, I can be kind to my neighbor. I don't have to kick it down, kick that speed bump down. I don't have to remove it. I can drive over it. Every single time I leave my house and I get to remember that my eternal inheritance is with Jesus Christ. And because I know that, I can treat him with love and kindness. This is how this works. What is your speed bump? Are you placing your hope in the fact that your eternal inheritance is secure with the Father, because you are born again. Very, very practical. Our theology should always be to the practical working out of obedience to the Lord. That's why I can be kind. That's why I can say hello. That's why I can do kind things for my neighbor. Because I know my God has secured my inheritance for me through Jesus Christ. So we have to keep moving on here. Peter notes that this hope has been made available to us through two specific means. So number one, it's according to God's great mercy. And if you've never done a study on mercy, you need to because it is powerful. And actually, so I did go through and I looked at, because Rachel and I divide up when we're going to teach. And before I even started thinking about this, you know, we just divided up based on weeks and our schedule and all of that. And so later I went back and I thought, Do I get to teach on mercy? (gasps) I do! I get to teach on mercy. So I'm sorry. I get to steal it. Anyways, I'm very excited about that. But this is so key. So we have been born again according to God's great mercy. So we have been granted a living hope first because of God's great mercy. If it weren't for mercy, we would still be lost in darkness, shackled to our sin, headed for ultimate judgment, God's wrath in the lake of fire but God reached down with his tender heart of mercy and plucked us from our misery. Colossians 1:13 and 14 says this, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to what This word that we keep saying to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins because of his mercy, true believers, those who have hope because Christ is in them are kingdom citizens. Because of God's mercy, we who are saved are blessed. So here's a helpful definition. Mercy focuses on the sinner's miserable Pitiable condition. Mercy is not the same as grace. Mercy concerns an individual's miserable condition, whereas grace concerns his guilt, which caused that condition. Okay, so let me say that again. Mercy concerns an individual's miserable condition, whereas grace concerns his guilt, which caused that condition. Divine mercy takes a sinner from misery to glory. It's a change of condition. The divine grace takes him from guilt to acquittal, a change of position. So here's another way to think about it. Mercy for the miserable, or mercy rescues us from what we deserve. Grace for the guilty. Grace gives us what we don't deserve. So do you remember the two famous words, from Ephesians 2. And they're not only in Ephesians 2, but we, yeah, (laughs) Michelle knows she said them, but these are such key words here. And I'm sure most of you know what I'm talking about. They are words that tend to, we tend to refer to when we think of God's salvation provided for us, they are, but God, what was it that caused God to break into our misery to save us? What was it? Paul tells us it was his rich mercy. Ephesians 2, 3-5 says this, Among them, unbelievers, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, and listen, being rich in what? Mercy, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So we have both components right there: mercy and grace. We have hope because God is merciful, and that hope in Christ, and that hope in Christ provided by a merciful God, empowers us to live with the attitude of kingdom citizens, even, this is key, even before we are transferred from here in our temporal living on earth to the eternal. The second means for hope that Peter mentions is the resurrection of Jesus. So number two uh, is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So one commentator put it like this. Peter writes a letter of hope hope. The hope he proclaims is not what we call a fond hope. We cherish fond hopes because they are so fragile. We hope against hope because we do not really expect what we hope for. But Peter writes of a sure hope. Now listen to what he says here. A hope that holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. Let me read that again. A hope that holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. His hope is a, is sure because God has already accomplished his salvation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Jesus instructed the disciples regarding the Beatitudes at the Sermon on the Mount, it was with the future of his death and resurrection still yet to come. Peter was there listening to Jesus as Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. But he did not yet fully understand what Jesus meant. The resurrection was still future. It had not yet taken place, so he couldn't possibly understand the full impact of of what Jesus was teaching when he talked about the Beatitudes. However, years later, when Peter wrote the epistle that we're looking at this morning, he wrote from the perspective of the past. Jesus had already suffered, died, and been resurrected from the dead. The Holy Spirit had already come to indwell believers at the day of Pentecost. So a different commentator writes this, the resurrection of Jesus was a life-changing reality for Peter. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the end of all of Peter's hope. You can only imagine all of his hopes were focused on Jesus Christ and building his kingdom, and now Jesus is gone. He knew only bitter sorrow for his own denials. The dawn could, bring, could not bring hope. With the crowing of the cock, he heard the echo of his curses, but Jesus did not stay dead. Hope was reborn in Peter's heart with the sight of his living Lord. The resurrection shows that God has made the crucified both Lord and Christ. With the resurrection of Jesus and his entrance into glory, a new age had begun. Peter now awaits for the day when Jesus will be revealed from heaven, Peter's living hope is Jesus Christ, is your living hope, Jesus Christ. So another aspect of Peter's praise and adoration to God is that God has called us to obtain an inheritance. And I know I've mentioned inheritance over and over again as we've been talking, but here now we get to actually look at it. So B, he has caused us to obtain an inheritance, The Jews would have been very familiar with the idea of an inheritance because God had promised them the inheritance of Canaan. If you remember in the Old Testament, they had the promise of moving into the land of Canaan, which was going to be their inheritance. They were going to take over that area. When they moved out of the wilderness, out of 40 years of wandering, each of the 12 tribes were given a portion of that land of Canaan as their inheritance. So John MacArthur says this, Peter told his readers that just as Israel received an earthly inheritance, the land of Canaan, so the church received a spiritual inheritance in heaven. So the imagery here for the people that were reading what Paul had written was very, very clear. They were able to understand an inheritance and what that meant because that was so much a part of who they were as a nation. John MacArthur goes on to say, The apostle reminded them that in the midst of their persecution, they ought to praise God and patiently wait for his promised eternal inheritance. So we're going to look at the various aspects in our passage of what this inheritance entailed. And probably you have all heard this taught on you, have maybe even studied it. This is a familiar passage, but it's still worth reminding ourselves because These descriptions are very important as we consider the hope that is linked to this inheritance. So first of all, number one, it is imperishable. Imperishable refers to what is not corruptible, not liable to death or subject to destruction. So keep this in mind as well. The Jews would have been able to connect with what Peter is saying because the land of Israel was at times ravaged and destroyed by raiding armies. Because the Israelites were disobedient to God's command, their inheritance suffered famine, invasion, and severe destruction by other nations. Remembering the Assyrians and the Babylonians, I mean, just over and over so many nations that kept coming in to to try and destroy their land. What a comfort for the believing Jews to understand that their heavenly inheritance could never be corrupted. It could never be destroyed. It was so unlike everything they knew about their earthly inheritance. Oh, this was an inheritance far beyond anything they could have ever imagined or dreamed. But guess what? That's our inheritance as well. But we don't sometimes have those connections because we aren't Jews and so we have to study and understand the history to be able to grasp the significance of some of this. So number two, this inheritance is undefiled. Thayer says, Thayer's lexicon says it's unsoiled or it's free from deformity. Everything in our world is defiled because of the curse of sin. There is nothing that doesn't eventually succumb to the wear and tear of time and exposure. But a believer's heavenly inheritance is kept in perfect condition. Nothing can cause it to be defiled or ruined. It is perfectly kept by our great God. And number three, it will not fade away. So again, the definition here fade away means unfading or by implication perpetual. So it doesn't fade away. It is unfading. So the Greek word, this is kind of interesting. The Greek word that Peter uses to describe this aspect of the inheritance was the same word used in secular Greek to describe a flower that did not wither or die. Now, if you know anything about me, you know, I love flowers. I love to arrange flowers I love to put flowers on my table I love to grow flowers I love flowers and I have lots of them in my yard and I have two favorite times of the summer growing season the first one is in May because that's when all my roses bloom for the first time and they're so full the bushes are so full with all these roses it's the best bloom they get all summer long And a lot of times I still have things left from the early spring flowers. You get all these pretty flowers at the same time. The second time that I really enjoy the flowers is mm, mid to late July, probably more late July. Because at that point, the roses, of course, have all died, and now they've come back. They're on their second wind here. So the roses are all blooming again, and now I have beautiful white hydrangeas all over the place. Oh, and I love to bring them in the house. And I love to share them with you guys, so you've probably seen them around. But to tell me that there's a flower that would never fade? Oh my goodness, imagine. Because if you go look at my yard right now, it's pathetic. It looks horrible. All of the white flowers are starting to turn brown. The bugs have all gotten at the roses. They're kind of falling off the stems. That's not like our inheritance. What a great visual dying flowers. Our inheritance will never fade away like dying flowers. Our glorious eternal inheritance will never fade. The seasons won't affect it, the bugs won't eat it, and the sun won't fade it. So number four, reserved in heaven. Lastly, Paul reminds them that this inheritance is reserved in heaven. It is being guarded and kept for the believer for the future. And you remember from Matthew 6, 19-21, this is still part of the Sermon on the Mount. So it says this, Matthew, did I already give you the reference? Matthew 6, 19-21, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures where? in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And where your heart is, is going to determine how you live from day to day. If you have forgotten that your treasures are in heaven, that your inheritance are in heaven? How are you going to respond to the challenges that you face day in and day out? Most likely in sin. And so we have to constantly be reminding ourselves that our treasure is in heaven, and that is where our hope is with our Savior so, that is why we can reflect an attitude that is blessed even in the face of difficulties. Our inheritance is reserved in heaven. So, as we move into our last verse, verse 5, commentator Thomas Schreiner explains this. He says, We should note that Peter now describes the inheritance in terms of salvation. Salvation can be defined as being rescued from God's judgment or wrath on the last day. So there is a component that there is an actual physical inheritance that we will receive in heaven. We we know that scripture talks of crowns and things like that. But there is a spiritual side of this in our salvation that Peter refers to. So see, he, God, has protected us for salvation Not only is our inheritance reserved, meaning guarded or protected for us, but God has protected us as well so that we will receive the inheritance. Did you ever think about that before? Yes, we know that our inheritance is protected in heaven and reserved for us. But did you think about the fact that God is protecting you so you can receive that inheritance? Both our physical inheritance waiting in the new heaven and new earth and also our salvation are protected by God. The Apostle Paul explains that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And I could give you verse after verse after verse after verse that talks about God's protection of us until we get to the eternal kingdom. But I'm just going to give you this one right here. So Ephesians one starting the midway through 13 and then 14. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We have been given the Holy Spirit who indwells us and it is a promise to us that one day we will be united with our savior in heaven. We are protected by God and sealed by the Holy Spirit with our redemption in sight. So number one, we are um, protected by his power. God has protected us by his very own infinite power. For the true Christian who understands his own weakness and sinfulness, this is an overwhelming comfort. If keeping my salvation were fully up to me, I would never be able to do it. I'm too simple. I'm too fickle. I'm too weak. I'm too unfaithful. But it is the power of God that keeps me. Oh, the hope in this. Thomas Schreiner said this. God's power does not shield believers from trials and sufferings but it does protect us from that which would cause us to fall away. Yes, in this life, you will face persecutions and trials and temptations and difficulties, but we have been protected so that nothing can take away our inheritance and nothing can keep us from being with our Savior one day. And number two, We are protected through faith. Now, this is an interesting thing here. Though we are kept by the power of God, we are kept through faith. So what do we have? I have to exercise my faith, and it's by the power of God. So we have two things that kind of almost seem like they're in conflict with each other. So this means we must engage and put forth effort, clearly, right? We have to exercise our faith. We have to place our faith in Jesus Christ. We don't just get to let go and let God. God keeps us by his power through faith. Ah, but listen. But the faith we have has been given to us as a gift from God. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that has been given to you by God. It is a gift from God. But that still means you have to put forth the effort to exercise that faith. It's one of those tensions in scripture. Yes, we are protected. Yes, we must also exercise faith. That's a gift from God together at the same time. And I was just listening to a sermon a couple days ago by John MacArthur, and he was explaining another one of these tensions, very similar to this, though. And he said, how does this work? I have no idea we don't we don't have any idea but we know by what faith that it is true because God has given us the faith to be able to believe that it is true so Ephesians 2 8 says this for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves it is the gift of God This is one of, as I already said, one of the paradoxes of scripture that we cannot wrap our minds fully around. Though we are protected by the power of God, we still must fully engage by exercising our faith, which is fueled by his power. And when we exercise our faith, we are placing our faith in Jesus Christ knowing that he has provided through his death and resurrection an inheritance that we will receive one day. By faith, we believe that. By faith, we can act in a manner that pleases the Lord because of those promises that we have been given. So let's take this full circle as we close. We who have been redeemed, who have been sealed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, are blessed because our hope is in an eternal inheritance that has been reserved for us by the power of God. This is what makes it possible to stay, to say, excuse me, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are they that mourn. Happy are they that are persecuted. We have a secure, confident hope that transcends the hope so's because we have been born again. So as we get ready to enter into this book and study this book, what a great passage of scripture to help us consider and think through so that we are well prepared to be able to live out, be obedient to the things that we're learning, so that it's not only just more knowledge, because we want to be changed by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your precious and wonderful word that does teach us who you are, that teaches us who we are, sinners in desperate need of a Savior, and that you give us passages like the one we had this morning that that shows us the hope that we have through Jesus Christ and his resurrection, and that through that we have an inheritance that is reserved in heaven, protected by you, that we are protected by you, by your power. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith that enables us to be able to live out the things that you have given us in your word, that you enable us to place a confident hope through faith in the things that you have promised us. Lord, I pray that as we move to our small groups that our time would be Honoring and glorifying to you, I pray that new friendships would be built, that we would truly desire to get to know one another, and that we would be able to fellowship in a manner that brings unity to this church body. In your name we pray, amen.